it's finally over. Scotland has a new parliament and it bears more than just a passing resemblance to the old parliament. Will anything change over the next five years or has a new Scottish elite found the formula for keeping the status quo intact? My name's Kat Boyd and welcome to the final episode of Contra Live. Before I introduce our guests tonight, let me take a second to say that we are entirely supported by word of mouth and your generosity. So please take one second, if you can, to help others find us by liking and subscribing to everything by Independence Live and Contour. You can find us at contour.co.uk and if you're feeling extra generous, please back independent media by giving us a small monthly donation. Now, we're confronted with shocking scenes coming out of Palestine. Palestinians have been shot at, beaten and arrested during three consecutive nights of Israeli military raids on Jerusalem's Alaska Mosque. It's Islam's third holiest site and during Ramadan. At least 35 people, including 12 children, have been killed in Israeli bombing on the Gaza Strip. This comes just one week after an Israeli court ordered the eviction of Palestinian families from the East Jerusalem neighbourhood of Sheikh Jarrah. These evictions are illegal under international law and Israel's leading human rights group say it's become an apartheid state. But will our politicians finally develop any moral courage on the question of the Middle East? Meanwhile, in Scotland, it's a case of meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Another SNP, narrow minority, backed by the Greens, another promise to fulfil a mandate for a referendum. The Tory opposition is literally unchanged. Labour and the Lib Dems are struggling to find a role. Has anything changed with this election? Elsewhere, in the rest of the UK, last week saw pretty mixed results for the Labour Party. In Wales, Mark Drakeford, a self-declared socialist, led Labour to a historic victory. But in England, Keir Starmer looks unprincipled and unpopular. His Labour Party once again took a hammering across the red wall seats and his authority has been weakened yet again by a failed effort to scapegoat Angela Rayner. But is Starmer heading for an early exit? To discuss this and more, I'm delighted to say that joining me tonight for our final episode are firstly, Irvin Welsh, acclaimed novelist, playwright and screenwriter. Secondly, we have Holly Cameron, one-time Labour candidate for Glasgow Kelvin. Thirdly, we have Graham Campbell, a SNP Glasgow City Councillor and an SNP candidate in this election. And lastly, we have David Jameson, the editor of Contour and co-host with me of the Contour podcast, Contourcast. Welcome to you all. Thanks for joining us tonight. So I just want to kick straight off with, with what's dominating the news right now. Um, as I said earlier, we'll start by discussing the crisis in the Middle East. Now, Irvin, I'll come to you first on this. Israel's own leading human rights group, B'Tselem, calls the situation apartheid and is directly comparing what's going on um, to the to white supremacy um, as it was in South Africa. Does the situation um, in Israel now demand a similar response of boycott, divestment and sanctions? What's your view on this? What, for what I can gather, it's exactly the same thing that's been going on and on and on, and it flares up um, 
every so often, and it seems to be a concerted effort on part of this and part of the Israel government to to basically make life absolutely untenable for Palestinians. Um, so it's you know it, it's a, it's a situation that um, how you know how does this how does this move on how does this alter? I mean, people have stopped talking about a kind of two state solution now. Um, and you know, really, it's it's so kind of soul destroying. You don't know where this is going. You know, you, there's there seems to be um, absolutely zero progress made. And I think that um, the, the 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 issue with turning Israel into into South Africa, it it goes back into the you know the whole nature of um, the Israeli state. I mean, it's like uh, a, a lot of the opponents of of um, Israel. As a concept, uh, don't you know they they don't want Israel to exist? I mean, the opponents of South Africa uh, didn't want South Africa not to exist. They wanted it mm. not to be an apartheid state. Mm. And I think this is the, the the whole issue is that every kind of um, opponent becomes bundled with, uh, and it suits extremists on both sides to you know to to say that um, to to have this kind of um, this this bogus in a way connection between kind of Israel and anti-Semitism uh, but it, it, it's something that you know it, it's something that's always there in the background mm -hmm. so it's I mean I think that um, eventually you know what, what will happen you know I mean the, the atrocities are such that um, that uh, and it, you know it, it's, it's like that um, it can't be, it just, you know. It had there have to be sanctions against Israel. Um, there has to be an, there has to be some idea that there can be regime change within Israel. That there can be um, an Israeli government, an Israeli people who want to have some dialogue with the Palestinians. We haven't got that right now. Thanks, Irvin. So, I mean, one of the traditional places for putting forward. Um, these demands of boycott, divestment and sanctions, be it in South Africa or Israel, has traditionally been in the labour movement. So Holly, I'd like to come to you on, on, on this topic because I think recently um, the Labour Party has really struggled to articulate support for the Palestinian cause under new labour. Of course, there was a, a, you know, a big moment for uncritical support for Israel. Then we've had the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn has Labour become a bit of a lost cause for international solidarity? David, I'm going to move on to, to yourself because I'm quite keen to get your take on it. Because in the past, you've been really critical of the Scottish government for not speaking out against the Israeli, American and British various foreign policies. But in this case, um, Nicola Sturgeon has already come out and said that Israeli actions are indeed a violation of international law. Surely that's a major rhetorical difference between the British government line and the Scottish government line. Do you think that you could be guilty of judging Holyrood by a different standard than, than judging Westminster? Yeah, I don't think there's any question uh, of the, the difference in rhetoric between Nicola Sturgeon um, and even more so, actually, Alan Smith. If you've seen his uh, letter uh, that he issued from the Parliament, and he, I know there's a debate coming up in Parliament, um, there's clearly a, a rhetorical, a huge rhetorical difference between Holyrood and Westminster. 
Um, actually, if anything, the language coming out of Westminster parties is even more intransigent than it was in the past. And I think that's partly a consequence of the crackdown against the pro-Palestine movement we've seen across the UK. But what I would still say about the statements that we've seen from, so Alan Smith's statements, for example, said that the, the UK government should uh, consider uh, reducing its diplomatic relations uh, with the uh, Israeli state. And that is a, that is a new departure. Uh, but what I would still say is, you know, in Scotland, there's still a degree of buck passing here. What's the UN going to do? What's the EU going to do? What's the UK going to do about the situation in, uh, in in Palestine? There's a great deal more that could be getting done in Scotland right now. I mean, it was interesting, for example, that in the Queen's speech yesterday, the Tories proposed legislation that would ban public sector bodies uh, from engaging in boycott, divestment and sanctions of Israel. Uh, and on the one hand, that represents the Tories' determination to crack down on political dissent yet again. But on the other, it rather does show that public bodies could already be doing this. Um, there's more scope in Scotland. Simply, I mean, Scotland doesn't have foreign policy uh, powers, that's true, but there's still much more scope for direct solidarity than currently is going on. There's still the consulate in Edinburgh. I mean, if we're talking about reducing diplomatic relations with Israel, just close the consulate, just refuse to uh, accept the consulate anymore, because I think this is a time for action. Like, you know, we've, we've had these words, as, uh, as Arvin was saying, like, you know, this comes up, you know, every, roughly every kind of two, three, five years, there's fresh atrocities. There's more rhetoric. I think now there needs to be uh, action. Thanks, David. Graham, do you what? What's your take on on this? Particularly, David's points that there is still a there's a great deal more that that can be done in Scotland. I'm not sure if there is a great deal more. Um, I would agree with the, the general thrust of the, uh, the discussion that we've had so far, that clearly the reason why the Tories want to ban local authorities, universities and student units from boycott, divestment and sanctions is because that tactic worked for a whole period of time when we were all actively trying to do it. And we were asked to do that by Palestinian civic society organisations. So they asked us to do that. And the backlash we've had against BDS has taken the form of very clever Israeli ambassador Mark Regev when he was here in London. He was the one who really bolstered the the, the tagging us, us pro-Palestinian activists as anti-Semitic. And that tactic, unfortunately, has worked for the whole last period of time, you know, since the previous outrage against Gaza in 2014, I think it was, was the last one. Um, now, pretty clearly, after 70 years of occupation, no bunch of people is ever going to accept doing having that done to them quietly. So, you know, particularly we, we've had the coalition coalescence of uh, the end of Ramadan with this Jerusalem day, which is usually a day when right-wing nationalists march through to celebrate Israel's occupation of East Jerusalem. Now, obviously, for people like me who believe in uh, you know, it's two-state solution. I'm, I'm one of those who does. But I also think that there's, a, there's another factor to the two-state solution, which is you're seeing this now in this revolt this week. People who are Arab citizens, Palestinians, who live in Israeli cities are actually out on the streets also mm -hmm. rioting and demanding justice from a, a regime that treats them as second-class citizens. So even if there is a two-state solution, the idea that mm -hmm. either of those states can realistically treat the citizens of the other state as second-class citizens within their borders that's just not going mm. to work now mm. obviously we've got 
aggressive, horrible Israeli regime under Netanyahu, which is determined to push ahead with illegal settlements and nobody's punishing them. So I suppose from the British point of view, I would like to see the British government say it's going to take action and sanctions against Israel. But I think that's very, very unlikely. Uh, the, the best we can do in Scotland is obviously show our solidarity with the Palestinians. But the reality is that our government, much as it can, can protest, it doesn't have control because we are not an independent country. Thanks, Graham. Um, Holly, I'll come back to you on that, that question that I asked previously. I think it is important to recognise that there has been, you know, these developments within the Labour Party, the uncritical support for Israel during New Labour, then the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, is Labour a lost cause for international solidarity now? Absolutely not. The Labour is definitely not a lost cause. I know that there's a there's a very proud pro-Palestine um, international solidarity and, and BDS movement within the Labour Party, which still exists. Um, credit where it's due. I know that um, Anas Sarwar, as well as Nicola Sturgeon, sent solidarity mm -hmm. to um, the protests in Glasgow on Saturday, just gone. Um, and mm -hmm. there, there has been a statement released by the Labour leadership. Um, it was a joint statement from Keir Starmer and Lisa Nandy. Mm -hmm. um, calling for a ceasefire and um, reinforcing their support for a two-state solution. Um, Lisa Nandy has a long history of being a supporter of um, uh, the Palestine movement. She's been to Palestine. Um, so it's it's something that um, something that you know still exists within the Labour Party mm -hmm. and is still um, a proud tradition here. Um, what I would just say is that, you know, there's there's been a lot made of uh, the issue in, in the party in, in recent years um, and you know I think that on on all sides we could probably do a bit better um, I think that the issue is is very very straightforward for me as a person and that anybody who would conflate um, anti anti-racism um, with you know anti-semitic sentiment is is not my command um, I think somebody who who would be welcome to the Labour Party, um, and I think that that's as simple as it gets for for most members and um, a lot of people that you have in, in the pro-Palestine movement and the Labour Party. The vast vast majority of them fall under that category. Um, they are they are proud and um, pro-Palestinians um, who who want to see peace in that area. Um, are, are again. You know the harming of civilians. Thanks, Holly. Um, unfortunately, we do have to move on to discussing the election results at the moment. But before we do, I just want to um, announce the demonstrations in solidarity with Palestine that are taking place around the country. There's a demonstration in Dundee this Friday at 2pm in the city square. On Saturday, there are events in Edinburgh, Inverness, Aberdeen throughout the day. And on Sunday, there is a protest in George Square, Glasgow. Now, hopefully you can see all the details of these at the bottom of your screen now. Yep, you can. So that's all the details for the demonstrations. Um, they'll also, the details will also be tweeted from the Contour Twitter account. And I hope that anyone who's able to can come out and show solidarity with those living under military occupation at the same time as dealing with COVID crisis. So now moving on to last week's election. This is our last episode of Contour Live, as I said, in the main 
thing to talk about today is really what happened um, in the Scottish Parliament election 2021. Um, Irvin, I'm going to come to you first. Um, it's been a pretty eventful five years, I think. We've had Brexit and we've had global pandemic, um, but we've also had, you know, climate change strikes, the collapse of the Red Wall for Labour, and closer to home, we've had the SNP's failures on drugs deaths and the care home crisis, um, and I could go on. Um, but the Scottish Parliament has stayed more or less the same following uh, last week's election. Do you think this means that voters are satisfied with the status quo? The SNP line that... Um We've got to show responsible governance during COVID and uh, do the best we can. So it's almost like, um, it's a bit like kind of suspended animation for a year, really, with mm. COVID. Uh, I think it's given everybody a, some kind of a fill-up, but that, um, it, you know, it's whatever you think about it um, and however you think it's been kind of treated, uh, people generally seem to have got behind, you know, all you know, seem to have got behind governments, basically. You know, mm. and they've given they've given them a bit of slack, uh, and they've, but I think that really for you know for for the SNP, I think they really do have to deliver on a, a second referendum, and they really they really did have the mandate after Brexit to to do that, mm. uh, and uh, I think now that uh, I think that the further down the line, I think patience will run out if they don't uh, deliver on the second referendum. Why is it, do you think, Irvin, that people are getting behind the government? Is that just because of COVID? Because I feel like some of the more traditional parties in Britain, like Labour and the Tories, are getting a bit of a kick in. The Tories over Brexit, um, obviously, like the, the sort of most prominent Tories at the time were back in Remain. Um, the Labour Party still getting, um, you know, bad ratings in the polls, Keir Starmer's popularity is failing. W what's going on? I think with England, it's, you know, I mean, I think really the... It's only really the electoral system that keeps the Conservative mm. and Labour parties alive. I mean, they're on the life support of the electoral system. There's no politics would have fractured and delineated in a completely different way uh, without without that ossification of the electoral system. But you've kind of seen with with uh, the a lot of the working class vote or an element of the working class vote in England that uh, people don't really care now. You know, they don't really sort of. Um, you know, the, the, there is that, um, it's almost like um, the, the anger against the Labour Party is so palpable. And uh, I mean, I think the attitude with so many working class people in England is that um, we kind of expect the Conservatives to, you know, to not to be in our interests and all that. But there's a sense of deep betrayal for the Labour Party that people, that, you know, that I've, I've felt this with people in England for years and years and years. I think it's kind of um, coalesced a bit now that they're they're kind of basically still giving Tony Blair a kicking, and um, they put you know they put um, and they, they've made the, the 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 absolute ridiculous error of putting somebody who's you know the least suitable person for winning back the the north of England and Midland working class Labour vote uh, into the position of power. So it's absolutely. They've managed to, to massively shoot themselves in the foot, and you know they, they seem to do it in every possible conceivable way. You know whether it's like mm. a, a '70s nostalgia trip or a '90s nostalgia trip, um, it's not really mm. working. I mean, there's, I think you know, I think the, there is a route to there is a route to labour 
to, to for a radical Labour Party for power in England, but um, it's not it's not the one that they're mm. have been pursued. Not either of the routes have been pursuing. Thanks, um, Holly. I'm I'm going to have to come to you on on this. Um, as I said in the introduction, you know, last week's election saw pretty mixed results for the Labour Party. But what Irvin's saying here, I think, you know, will ring true with a lot of people who are, you know, watching the show. Like, um, Keir Starmer seems very much in the Blairite mould. Why put him in charge of this when you're trying to win back those working class heartlands? Keir Starmer might be more of a, it might be more typical of a, a new labour base, professional managerial class types in London or urban areas, something like that. So, I mean, is this, is Keir Starmer's leadership in crisis. He essentially blamed Corbyn for the defeat in Hartlepool, then attempted to pin it um, on Angela Rayner. Um, is, is Keir Starmer on his way out? I don't know if he's on his way out yet, but um, if, he, if he doesn't think he's in trouble, um, then I think that he probably has less of a sense of self-preservation than is recommended in politics. I think that um, the the failures in England um, last week really showed that the the Labour Party has really really struggled to get to the heart of issues and of um, and of a of a messaging that that people really understand and, and care about. The last time that that was successful was of course in 2017. Um, and a number of factors came together in that. We had, as far as I'm concerned, we had a manifesto that was unapologetic about its ambition and its socialist values. Um, it was a manifesto that was in the context of leaving the European Union. It was a manifesto mm -hmm. that acknowledged the result and put its pitch to the people of the kind of society we could build in the wake mm -hmm. of that. Um, it acknowledged and decided to work within the boundaries that, you know, whether you liked it or not, the, the electorate had set with the referendum on the European Union um, the year before. Um, and it had very, very energised membership who really are the, the spine and the moral compass of this movement. They keep the movement going. Um, and that's the same for this past election, whether you were in Scotland, um, like I was, um, I, I was uh, elsewhere in Glasgow campaigning, um, and as uh, you know, if you were in Wales or England, um, the local volunteers and, and local campaigners keep the movement honest um, on the ground. As for the remover, remover now, I know that. Um, you know, she's taken a dignified approach and she doesn't want to kind of broach it. Um, in, in media interviews, she's still got her position as deputy leader. Um, but what I would just say is that it does seem like this has been taken as an excuse for an even harder pivot to the right, which mm. is and should be concerning to anybody who um, holds deeply socialist values and who believes in a Labour Party that is at its core representatives for working class and trade unions in parliament. And don't we have a similar problem in Scotland though, Holly? Like, I mean, I think of Anna Sarwar as like being in that tradition of 
um, a Blairite. The media in Scotland seem to love him. They think that, you know, he does a little clip of him dancing. Um, you know, he's he's going to be like the next uh, first minister, whatever. But I see him very much in that same mould. Um, so I think the, the problem exists in Scotland too, doesn't it? Yeah, so I can I can see um, where Anas and, and the people who are surrounding him and advising him are can understand what they're getting at. They they understand um, and they're they're taking and running with the principle that people need to uh, be able to look at the leader of a political party and consider them to be um, a legitimate political player. Um, and an Sarwar as somebody who mm. you know both both for his own politics, but also as a consequence of a failing Labour Party that is losing representation steadily um, in Scotland. Um, he's one of the longest established um, figureheads of Labour in Scotland. Um, so you can understand the logic um, from, uh, from those who support Anas's leader, um, that, that they want somebody who is recognisable um, and is, um, is going to be credible in, in the eyes of the electorate. Not even I would deny that when I was on the doorstep last week, lots of people were saying, oh, that an ass, he seemed really energetic. I, I kind of like him. That doesn't mean that those people were voting for us. <laughs> which is the problem. But, um, you know, I think the logic with, um, with an ass and his leadership is that that will, that will come. Um, what I would suggest is that, you know, you can't, you don't have to undermine your principles or, um, apologise for being a socialist in order to be taken seriously in Scottish politics mm. and we saw that in 2017. Mm. Thanks Holly. Graham, I'm going to come to you on this because I think that there's quite an interesting theme coming out of what Irvin and Holly have both been talking about. So we've got this issue within the Labour Party which is you know happening to social democratic parties all across Europe. The, I think the, the word that gets used is pasoffification, you know, the collapse of, of social democracy, those big organisations in most major states across Europe is definitely happening to the Labour Party in the UK. And do you think that there's, there's a danger of the SNP falling victim to this? I know that the recent, um, some of the recent research that, that Contour has done has shown that the support base for the SNP has changed, that, you know, middle class voters are moving towards independence and research shows that um, support for independence is falling amongst um, poorer people in Scotland. You know, is the SNP in danger, especially after the, the last week's election, is it in danger of becoming a party of power rather than its traditional role as a party of protest? After take it, I disagree with every single word that you've just uttered because I just don't think that any of that actually represents the reality of what actually has been going on in Scotland. But firstly, I think there was certainly a case that when social democratic parties across Europe were led by Blairite and Brownites, and there was a whole raft of them which were in government at the time the European Union went towards the Euro, who dominated that project back in the you know mid to early 90s. That's long gone. Those, you know, that project now, uh, overwhelming the governments in Europe are right or right of centre governments. Uh, it's very rare now to have a left of centre government that's dominant the way that we've got the SNP in Scotland. That's now a, a rarity. But 
the very fact that you've got a government that had in its manifesto to nationalise the railway, create a national care service, create free dentistry, extend free school meals. I could go on and on and on, but there are many things that would be normally associated with progressive left and centre social democratic parties, which have been the norm of politics, actually, in Scotland under the SNP and indeed before us when the Labour Lib Dem coalition was in. You know, there has been a left of centre consensus in Scottish politics for quite a while, you know, which is unusual in Europe. So first of all, we're an outlier. So that's the first thing. I, I don't necessarily accept your analysis. Secondly, it's obvious that the SNP has got the mass base of support it has. It's because it's won the allegiance of working class people post the yes referendum, yes vote in 2014. That working class base that used to vote Labour votes for us now and votes for us pretty overwhelmingly as the results in this election show that we've not only consolidated that base, we've actually increased it a bit. And some of the signs of that are in areas where you would expect the turnout to be low, which it was last time in 2016, uh, areas like West Pilton, for example, uh, still the low the turnout was still quite low compared to the middle class neighbourhoods of Edinburgh, but it doubled in West Pilton from, I think, 19% to just uh, in the high to mid 30s range so the working class neighborhoods which you'd think are, would be more disenchanted and, and sector after a government's been around for this long actually turned out in greater numbers to vote for it so i don't actually accept that working class people are, are losing support for the SNP. it is true that uh, middle class voters are moving because post-brexit they are moving towards independence there's no doubt about that there's been a shift amongst a certain section of them and obviously this this skill of social democratic politics has been about how can you keep an alliance between uh, working class supporters and middle class supporters for a progressive uh, mm. change that makes sense to both of those classes. Uh, we do that in the form of independence as the as the vehicle to do that. Uh, other social democratic parties do that in the form of trying to create a new society and create a consensus mm. around building public services. You know, we've obviously had to struggle with the Tories doing what they've done in government over the last 11 years. And in that context, it's still quite remarkable that we've been able to do what we can do. But there are limits to the way we can mitigate against austerity. Uh, that's why we need independence. That, and that was very clearly expressed in the way the electorate voted. And the final thing I'd say is this about the COVID thing. Uh, it's, I was one of the founders of Zero COVID Scotland, and we've been campaigning for an elimination strategy. And Scotland has benefited from being closer to an elimination strategy than the Boris Johnson strategy of let it go, let it hang out. Um, you know, because we've done that, we've been more strict with the lockdown and more precise about the, the, the safety measures that we're taking. Fewer people have died. Still, there's some obviously there's some outlying points about the what's happened with the care crisis. Of course, that's been a, a disaster, but that's been a disaster all over Europe. So every country in Europe has got that wrong, um, and there are lessons we can learn from that. And obviously, we'll get a, an inquiry. But the fact that we've diverged from the four nation strategy as much as we have mm -hmm. has been why we've had a better result, and more people trust the government as a result mm -hmm. of it. So um, I think that's why we've got the support we have. Hmm. I mean, I, I do, I, I appreciate and I respect your, your confidence in those figures, Graham, but the, the data that we have from our research is that the individual level survey data from the Scottish Social Attitude Survey and the British Election Survey are the two biggest surveys of electoral preferences in the UK, show these bases of support um, you know, are changing. I can see that David um, hasn't come in for a bit, so I'm going to bring David in here as well. 
David, what do you make of this? You know, is Scotland, a, you know, a historic outlier? Are the SNP like not at risk of, you know, becoming that? I saw that someone flashed up in the in the um, ticker tape there saying that Nicola Sturgeon's government was absolute third wave playwright. I mean, that's a view that exists. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose if you were to think that the SNP were the lone social democratic holdout in the entirety of Europe, you would, you know, be saying we should be bottling this and selling it across Europe. I don't, I don't think that is the case. I think, as you said, Kat, you know, this is a this is a worldwide phenomenon by this point. You know, obviously, you have the decline of the Party Socialist in France, the decline of the SPD in Germany, which looks like it's going to get replaced by the Greens in France. The Socialist Party was replaced by En Marche in uh, the National Front. In Greece, PASOK was replaced by Syriza. But this is going on. I mean, in, in Italy, uh, the Partito Democratico has disappeared, essentially, is a worldwide phenomenon. Um, and I want to say, you know, Keir Starmer is crap. He is useless, right? But I don't really think this is about him. Uh, I Just as, I think, I think uh, Urban's absolutely right to say, in many ways, Corbyn's still playing, paying for Blair, and I suspect Keir Starmer is still paying for Blair. Um, this is about the long-term decline and decomposition of the social democratic base. People forget that with social democracy, it wasn't a project handed down from on high by politicians. It was a relationship to a mass base in society that had to be developed through concrete action. After the Second World War, you know, Labour was a party of massive house building massive support for industries, you know, uh, industrial strategies that picked winners, that sent millions of people into jobs that were exploitative, but that were still, you know, you could you could be in them for life and you could learn skills and, and so on and so forth. And you could buy, have a house and you could support a family through that kind of traditional structure and so on. What we've seen in recent decades mm -hmm. is that there aren't political parties which defend that kind of settlement, which are mainstream mass parties, and it's slowly disintegrated. And to me, what, what the SNP represents, I mean, there's something really fascinating going on here, which is that social democracy has declined both in Scotland and in England, and it has resulted in a political formation which is different, both sides of the border, but I think categorically similar, which is big tent nationalist centre parties. That's what Boris Johnson's building in England. He's not building some far-right party, you know, like in Hungary or something like that. He's building a big, broad-based, middle and working class Tory party. That's that's the project. Hence all this money that's getting thrown to northern seats and so on. In uh, Scotland, on a different basis, with, with some different policies and some different attitudes, uh, a big tent centrist nationalist bloc uh, is being created. In both cases, the active class element is the ruling class, is the capitalist class. Um, and you can see that in the policy perspectives fundamentally of, of both parties. Thanks, David. Um, I mean, I think that we are kind of talking around the issue of, of independence. So I want to bring it back to that. Irvin, you mentioned um, earlier um, about the, the mandate, that the SNP had a mandate after Brexit for another referendum. Now, unionists are saying that even though the SNP are the... the the biggest party in the Scottish Parliament, that they don't have a legitimate mandate for another referendum. What do you make of this argument? People come up with and, you know, they use the numbers and the different voting systems and, uh, you know, uh, a mandate for something down south isn't a mandate for something in Scotland. It's nonsense. I mean, it's like people have consistently voted SNP and they've voted for independence, they've voted for an independence referendum in this election. Uh, I think that... Um, 
really the sh we should have gone straight to an independence referendum after the the um the brexit result uh and uh i think that that was such a such a major thing to uh to to remove a country from a, a whole set of european relationships that have developed um and you know i'm not kind of a, a massive big kind of bc fan but i think that uh in terms of democracy there's just something that, mm -hmm. that doesn't sit right there and you have to if you you know you, i think it's like um the the, the 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 weird thing about it is it's like most people in England don't care about this. They don't they, they don't really care about it at all. And I think that's one of the things that um that could percolate up to the Conservatives if they're trying to kind of um serious about trying to develop this working class base. I'm not really sure they are, to be to be quite honest. But um I think that um if if they you know if they're looking for that um that to hold on to this short-term kind of electoral gain, and they want to do something fundamental. I think the best thing they could do, the best English nationalist card they could play, would be to say to um, to Scotland and Wales and all that, just get on with it, go, because we, you know, it's like it's a massive distraction for England, and it's you know, it, I don't really see any kind of point or any currency in this now, and it's mirrored in the schizophrenia. Um, with, you know, they just want this to go away, and, to, and, and it's not going to go away. You know, so um, just get rid of it. I mean, I couldn't agree more um, about the the issue around Brexit. Um, I mean, I'm you know very critical of the European Union, consistently critical, um, along with with other people who are involved in Contour. But to watch Scottish institutions be treated like petulant children when it came to the actual negotiations, I think told us something very clear about British democracy um, and how it functions. Um, so, I mean, I think that the, the issue that a lot of people will have is that we've heard this kind of, you know, <clears throat> need for a mandate now. So Nicola Sturgeon reportedly told Boris Johnson on a phone call that a second referendum was when, not if. And we have heard that kind of rhetoric before. Do you think we'll see a referendum in the next parliamentary term or do you think it will be, you know, another five years? I think they'll have to be, they'll have, they'll have to make some kind of a deal. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I think that um, there'll probably be some face-saving deal between uh, Sturgeon and Johnson in some way because mm -hmm. I, you know, that's, the only, that's the only way this um, impasse can be broken. I mean, I think that um, it, it sort of... Uh, it begs the question. It's like uh, the, you know, it goes back into the Labour's feelings in um, in England. I don't think that people see the British state as a legitimate basis for any kind mm -hmm. of class politics now. I think that Labour suffered for, for, for that reason mm -hmm. in England, um, and I think that, um, that there's a there's a a question, a big question mark over the political legitimacy of the British state now. I mean, you, you look at what has been for. For the the last 40 years it's been all about the distribution of the resources of that state to the richest of uh, up to a transnational elite um and it seems to serve no other purpose mm. i mean the, the, the way the smp has managed to score is because it does have a defined project as a defined radical project which is independence um and i think that that project when you look at the the, the emergence of uh organizations like the, the the north of england independence party i think that mm. the, that project of that decentralizing project that renewal project is something that in some ways is going on right across these islands mm. um 
And I think it's to do with the secular decline of imperialism and deindustrialization and the end of uh, the UK as a state. Yeah, the, the Northern Independence Party is definitely quite an interest in development, I think. Um, Holly, I'm going to come to you because you were supposed to be a candidate in this election, um, but you were, were dropped by um, Labour HQ against the wishes of your local branch, Adad. And that's because you supported um, holding a, a second independence referendum. Why do you think that there is so much reluctance to talk about changing um, the position on a second referendum within the party. I'm desperate to know, is it genuinely ideological? Is it tactical about chasing the unionist vote? Um, or is it just true that the party in Scotland are controlled at a distance by London? Here's the awkward bit. Um, it's actually both. Um, so it's tactical and ideological, um, certainly in this most recent Scottish election. Um, I know that going into going into the election, going into candidate selections, the um, Scottish Policy Forum, which has representatives of trade unions, constituency Labour parties, and other important figures in the Labour Party, um, you know, delegated to it, um, had passed a policy um, which was um, challenged and debated by those who feel the same as I do that. Um, you know, we can't continue to deny uh, a second referendum when the, the, it seems that, that the Labour Party should be um, represented one. However, the, the policy was passed and the policy is was that the Scottish Labour Party respects the claim of right, but going into the 2021 elections, it will campaign against having a independent referendum in the following term of Parliament which um, I consider to be incoherent um, and it's not something I believe anyway. Um, it's not something I agree with. Um, I was asked for an interview by the, the Sunday National and I gave it, outlining my views, um, myself and, um, and my friends and advisors. Um, you know, we, we thought that there, I could probably get a bit of exposure with people in Glasgow Kelvin constituency to sort of highlight my views. I was selected by my local party because of my history with the Yes Movement um, and because of my beliefs. They felt it would, um, I could connect better with people in this constituency, which was a very heavy Yes constituency. Mm -hmm. However, um, the party already knew that it was going into the election um, with the idea that it would be campaigning against, or, or it would not countenance, rather, um, another independence referendum in the next five years. Um, and that was before the, um, the pandemic even, even rolled around. Um, mm. I, know that, I know that since then, um, the, the campaign has been focused on recovery and investment in public mm. services, which mm. are good labour values. Um, yeah. and, are, and are something that something that I would have put front and center as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just um, there's a it's it's ideological um, but both tactical. I think that the Scottish Labour Party knew it was in for an uphill climb, mm -hmm. uh, especially since there was a change of leadership so so soon um, mm -hmm. before the election. 
Um, so while um, you know there are kind of there's there's talk of you know humbly accepting the result um, from Scottish Labour HQ, I think they're probably kind of privately going away and thinking, oh well, good because that could have been much worse. Um, so I think that's the that's where we were. We were hoping not to slide back so far that it would have been even more difficult um, yeah. and embarrassing. And I think that um, that we didn't do that is is being taken as a win. Um, yeah. I mean, Holly, can I just I, I just want to interrupt you to say there that, that probably you were a better better strategist than whoever made the decision in Scottish Labour because in in Glasgow, Kelvin which has traditionally been one of the kind of Glasgow Labour strongholds, Labour have now slipped to third place. I mean, this is like quite unimaginable. I mean, it was the seat that's associated with um, people like George Galloway, things like that. So, I mean, I think that your 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 points about exposure are really good. Um, but I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna move this on a little bit because I want to talk a little bit about the case for independence because if we're going into another referendum then we're going to need to have a new case um you know discussed for independence because the 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 SNP case recently has been based on the recommendations of the growth commission um, penned by Andrew Wilson and two of the most contentious aspects of that report are the fact that it um, gives up full fiscal control um, of the economy to the Bank of England and signs Scotland up to um, the EU demand of limiting uh, deficits to 3% annually. The most important consequence of that would be that an independent Scotland couldn't have committed to something like a furlough scheme and would be forced into austerity budgets. Now, Graham, I know that obviously as our kind of SNP person on the panel, both you and Nicola Sturgeon have actually rightly said that the Growth Commission is out of date. Um, but was it ever in date? Um, I think it is, you know, some people would say it's at best a short-sighted model Scotland's future after the collapsed and discredited Celtic Tiger economy. Um, and that's putting it quite generously. Do you think that the Growth Commission has done some serious harm to the case for independence? First of all, the, the main thing it's done, it's provided people like you and <laughs> to, with the convenient excuse to slag us off all as neoliberals. Uh, it, it was a daft document when it was produced because, frankly, it was out of date economically because it didn't really take into account the economics of the time when it was published in 2018. It obviously couldn't take into account Brexit because that wasn't known yet. It didn't take into account the impact of auto automation and technology, and it didn't take into affect the impact of climate change and the need to, to go to net zero. So with the four major important crises not covered by it, of course, it couldn't be an adequate document. Uh, that said, there were 50 or so recommendations within it, seven of which related to currency. And most of the critics I've ever heard of or read about on this clearly haven't read the document because the document in about 11 places explicitly says even Andrew Welsh thinks that uh, Austerity doesn't work as an economic strategy, that uh, austerity in terms of budget deficit reduction methods and so on are completely anti-growth and therefore don't, are not effective. So even he, as a 
fairly centre-right economist rejects those things. And yet it's been used as an ideological foil for everybody to say, look how neoliberal the SMP is. It's a daft document. wish we'd never published it. Uh, but it, it, the reality is it's now out of date. And it's out of date for some obvious reasons, because it hasn't taken into account the things I've, I've mentioned. Now, what it does do, which is actually quite useful, it does set up about 40 things which will be necessary in an independent country. Having your own clearing bank, having your own currency system, you know, having all of those things which are necessary for an independent state to have. It does, it even argues for a gender pay commission, which is something that other countries in the Nordic belt have. So it, it argues for a number of reform-based things that the state should have, which, okay, they would, I, I could probably live with most of those things. The things that weren't accepted and the members of the SNP conference explicitly rejected in 2019 were the elements around sterlingization and keeping sterlingization for any serious length of time in the transition towards our own independent currency. One of the main reasons why we lost the referendum in 2014 was the lack of clarity around having our own currency, which everybody knew that we had to have. We, our answer to what will happen if the UK doesn't let you use the pound should have been we will have a Scottish pound or Scottish currency. That should have been the answer. That would have killed most of that conversation. Unfortunately, because our prospectus didn't have that, the next one is going to have to be very, very clear. And I think the next one very clearly will be independent currency. We will be in charge of our, our own destiny economically straightway. We are leaving the UK state because we want to leave their neoliberal, monetarized capitalist form of, of economics. We want to leave that behind and have a fairer, more equal, more social democratic society. That's a, a consensus across a lot of parties, not just in the SNP. So to get there, we're going to have to have a, a, a state with the full economic powers. And that was one of the things, of course, that will be sorted out when we're getting into the process towards the next referendum. Yeah. I mean, just uh, in in defence of those who are like myself, who are pro independence but anti growth commission, it wasn't just people like myself. It was also lots of people within the SNP were really critical of the growth commission as well, right. and I think are um, very you know very much looking forward to a new strategy. What's the sort of timeline for a new strategy to be delivered? Is this going to? I think that that's the worry about the wording and the referendum, isn't it? You know about a referendum after the recovery when is the case going to be made or is that happening you know closer to the referendum time well pretty clearly people are already starting to do economic analyses just now um starting to to, to delve into that territory um I'm very keen that, that a wider spectrum of views around that should be included as possible. So I'm happy to take a bit of time to do that because I think the economic perspective, the people who were sort of risk averse, you know, that 10 to 20 percent of the electorate who maybe in their heart wanted independence but didn't believe it, it was economically viable, the people who were worried about their pensions and their money and their houses, etc. Understandable things they were worried about. We need to be able to clearly answer those questions. And it was not reasonable to have asked them in the last couple of years, because frankly, we couldn't have given them definitive answers. What will be the trading system post-Brexit? What will be the border situation with England if we happen to be the border and, and we we join the European Union? We need to be able to answer those questions definitively. And so it was reasonable to not ask them until we could have a set of situations mm. where we know the answers. Now, I hope that in the next, I, I expect the timing, I'm expecting it in 2023. Uh, that's when I think the vote will be. Uh, and I think that the preparation time up to that is more than enough time to develop an economic perspective, which shows where the country's 
going to, mm. what direction the, the project will take. Mm. That hope will be very clearly to the left, very clearly in the direction of a more equal society and then one that th tackles the climate crisis by properly investing in all those things. Thanks, Graham. Um, Holly, I'm going to bring you in just now because you want to come in on this, but if you keep it brief, because um, I'm going to bring David in um, and then, then we'll, we'll close. We're a little bit going over time, but if you can be brief, that would be great. Yeah, of course. Um, I just wanted to say I know that um, earlier on, Graham um, took exception to the fact that, um, you know, there were some comments made about um, managerialism and, and, um, and Blairism in, uh, in the Scottish National Party. Um, and I think that, you know, being as we are based in Glasgow, you don't have to look very far for evidence of that. Um, you just have to look to Glasgow City Council Chambers. Um, that's 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 the place you need to look. Um, with respect to the case for independence, um, I know that as somebody who is in that small but vital um, chunk of people who considers themselves to be um, for or against, depending on the case that's put to them, I would just um, want to know how how progressive people like um, yourself and your comrades, Graham, would square the circle uh, of an independent Scotland that is progressive and prosperous, that is a member of the European Union, uncritically and automatically. And I, and I want to furthermore ask how you would approach the, the sort of trope that's going around at the moment about uniting the country. How would you, um, how would you approach that, given that you know, your, your talk about you know, taking some time to consider other viewpoints tonight just isn't very convincing. Thanks, Holly. Um, Graham, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you what's, respond to that because I think there is, a, there is a point to what Holly's to what Holly's saying about the about automatic EU membership. Nicola Sturgeon has said that there wouldn't be a referendum on the EU, and there would be, in the case of independence, we would be seeking, um, you know, to to rejoin the European Union straight away. So I. It would be great if you could pick up on some of those points. I'll then bring David in and we'll 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 round up there. I'm not sure Holly actually asked me a question. She made this statement. And okay, she's entitled to that view, but I, I don't obviously share that view. But I would say this. If if we were having a normal conversation about normal times and we weren't coming out of a covid crisis which has pretty much destroyed everybody's economy and and lost literally millions of lives around the world we would have had a very different set of circumstances i'm quite convinced that probably we would we may well have had an actioning of the mandate that we had in 2016 that if the conditions changed around Brexit, that we had a mandate to hold a referendum then. I would have expected the referendum in 19 or 20. Uh, the, the reality was that also Brexit took a hell of a lot longer to, to resolve than everybody anticipated. So I'd anticipate that we'd be having a, a referendum while still in the orbit of the, the, the EU's common market and single market. Uh, we're outside it now, and by the time we get to the referendum, we don't know what the economic situation will be in 2022, mm. 2023 yet. So I think we have to have a specific economic analysis for that time. Mm. And it may be by that time, we can't rejoin the EU automatically. Um, now, my, my views, I'm fairly flexible about this. Many comrades in the party will say that we're in favour of EFTA membership as a, an immediate strategy if we, we, we are able to become independent. Uh, it may be that we have to have a referendum to rejoin the EU. That may be the case because by the time that happens, I'm thinking 
we vote in 2023, we may action it by 2025 or 26, uh, we will have been out of the EU for more than five years. So the economic circumstances will be different. So I think there's some justification for maybe thinking of having a referendum to rejoin. Thanks, Graham. David, I'm going to come to you last um, because, and it's actually based on some of what, what Graham has said, because you've argued that the SNP should be more aggressive in holding a referendum. Um, lots of people would think that it's actually quite reasonable for the SNP to say, right, we've got to wait until, you know, we've recovered um, economically from COVID before we hold a referendum. You know, that seems to be like what, you know, pop popular opinion, the public opinion is that we should actually wait, let's see what <clears throat> the recovery from COVID is like before we bound into another referendum. Has the SNP leadership won the argument for caution and playing the long game? It's interesting that this idea emerged over recent years that the SNP leadership were the cautious ones and there were a bunch of hotheads out there in the independence movement. Um, the only people calling for a referendum in 2021 that I saw, and this was until very recently, this was in a couple of months ago, were Ian Blackford and Mike Russell. Mike Russell was telling foreign diplomats we were having a referendum in a few months' time, in, in 2021 until very recently. And, you know, these are very senior figures in the SNP. Now, of course... That was about spiking the confidence, you know, holding up the confidence of a section of the independence movement ahead of an election as sort of classic um, manipulation. I don't think anyone would disagree that the, the that you can't have a referendum until the pandemic uh, is over. Um, but there is a big distinction between it being after a pandemic and it being after a recovery, which is what John Swinney recently said. Because then you have to ask the question: whose recovery is this going to be? Uh, we saw from the Queen's speech. Uh, what kind of recovery this is going to be. Very pro-big business. Um, and it has to be said that the SNP's plans for recovery so far published are of a very similar mould. I mean, it tells you something that in the Queen's speech we hear about free ports in England and that the Scottish government has announced that it wants its own mm -hmm. free ports, but it's going to call them green ports. But they're still just, you know, tax, uh, tax you know, low tax, you know, low regulation, all this kind of stuff. So that the ideas of how you get recovery and one of the principal ideas that's come out of the Scottish government is selling off Scotland's national assets, clearing away planning regulation and all this kind of stuff to sell off national assets as fast as we can ahead of COP26 uh, of all things. Now, here's the problem, right? In the last five years, the SNP and the Greens have passed enormous cuts into working class communities all over Scotland. Yes, with mitigations, Yes, with their hands tied to an extent by the monies that are coming up from the central state and so on. But the, you know, what was always said about that by, by Nicola Sturgeon and co was, well, yeah, we have to do this because we need the full powers of independence. Mm -hmm. So if people are saying that we're not going to have a challenge for independence before the recovery, then what they're saying is we are prepared to pass yet more cuts and more attacks on the working mm. class in Scotland. I think people have to choose and be honest about what we're doing. You know, I think you have to be cuts. honest with what we're doing, mate. Uh, I think I, I, I've been a council for. Four I'm gonna years. sorry. I'm I've just gonna like. To. I'm just gonna intervene there because I mm. want to just finish on possibly an optimistic note, but we'll wait and see. Um, with the last word to, to Irvin. Now, Irvin, do you think there's anything to be optimistic about? Do you think if we have another referendum in the next five years, we'll win? Tell me some good news. 
has changed very, very quickly. You know, things are very volatile. You know, it's just the era we live in. Uh, it's impossible to kind of play in Nostradamus and all that. But uh, I think, you know, the, things have been bleak for so long. I always think that, you know, physics, it's like physics, action and action equally and opposite and all that. So uh, I think that um, there is good news ahead. There is optimism ahead. There's always grounds for optimism. That's great. Thanks very much. Um, and thanks to you all for joining us today. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Independence Live for their technical support and for hosting the show. Without them, none of this would have been possible. You can keep up to date with this and loads of other events um, by subscribing to their YouTube channel or by checking out their website, independencelive.net. In addition to this, I'd like to thank our guests for being part of the discussion today. Finally, thank you to Conter for organising this event. Remember, Conter tries to bring you the best insights, but we're not funded by millionaires. If you can afford it, please support Conter with a small monthly donation. You can do that and a lot more by visiting our website at conter.co.uk. Thanks everyone for watching and good night.